The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What is up, everyone? Welcome into episode 11 of season 3 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is the great drummer, percussionist, multi-instrumentalist of the American Roots band, The Wood Brothers, Jono Ricks. The Wood Brothers just put out a new record very recently, The Heart is the Hero, and on it, Jono does a lot of really cool stuff. The sounds are incredible, the playing is really cool. And he's also doing double duty playing keyboards and drums at the same time. And the whole record was recorded live to analog tape. So it's a really cool listen. This is a fun interview. I didn't put two and two in together as we were talking. He keeps talking about his father being a professional drummer in New York. His father is Luther Ricks, who was the drummer for the Broadway version of uh, Tommy, the Who musical. So there's a bit of a connection there. He talks about being a kid and, and you know, messing with his dad's kit, who he must have been practicing for Broadway shows. So kind of interesting. I don't know why I didn't put that together while we were talking, but uh, so this is a cool story. We're in his studio, so his gear's there, and we dig into the new record and his approach and, and this interesting combination of drums and percussion. So anyway, let's get to it with Jono Ricks. What is this space that you're in? Uh, I'm in our studio. Uh, so... Yeah, I share this with the Wood Brothers and Brooke Sutton, our engineer, who does all our records. And um, yeah, so it's 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 our. This is like the B room. This kind of like the storage room. And um, okay. And uh, yeah, we make our records here, and I'm I'm here making a record with another guy right now. Oh, nice. Uh, we're doing this on lunch lunch break <laughs> very cool was yeah. the new uh wood brothers record done there yep nice i was yeah. just listening to it on repeat for the past couple of days it's a beautiful record oh nice um you have like the you have the uh, heart is the hero the one that's yeah about to come out nice yep yeah so did i read correct that that was recorded all to tape 16 tracks yeah. yeah how did that go down was there any overdubs at all was it all live on the floor there were overdubs but okay. uh yeah the the overdubs tended to be lit uh limited to <laughs> um often just our background vocals and then one or two other things because we were at track 15 and 16 <laughs> right <So. laughs> I sound like there might have been, was there any percussion overdubs or were you just kind of creative with the panning? Um, no, there are. Um, let me think. There's not a lot, but there, I play shitar and if you know what that is, uh, or if you don't, I can explain it. That yeah. and drum set <laughs> together on a few things. And sometimes it's, it's a little confusing because I'll play almost the same part on them, you know? Oh, Okay trying to remember some things i think we one thing we like to do is track um like standing real close to each other with me playing shitar and them playing either acoustic instruments or whatever electric instruments and then i'll underdub overdub the drums uh through the whole track oh interesting which growing up i thought that was you just don't do that <laughs> Was That's it hard it. to do to go back and put drums on top of it or under it? No, amazingly not. No, I learned that about myself a, a few years ago. It's probably on a Wood Brothers record that, oh, this works great. <laughs> Before right, so, that, I was kind of like, no, everyone plays to the drums. Like you have yeah. to just for like the little things and feel like you're going to want to. And no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have a bunch of questions about your setup and your gear, but let's talk about the shitar. What is that thing? Mm. I wish I had it here, but it just um, got picked up because we're about to leave on a tour. Um, uh, it's a shitty guitar that got turned into a percussion instrument. Uh, my friend Matt Glassmeyer invented the first one. Gosh, like. 20 or 30 years ago with a guitar he found in his garbage outside his apartment in Brooklyn. And uh, 
so yeah, it requires a a ring on your wedding ring finger to play on the side, a very heavy one that's eventually going to break through the side of the guitar and and um <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I spent many many years pretty much like every day like changing it and working on it and graphing out pickup placements on it like oh wow. like, it's well you know trying to invent an instrument and then have it be able to amplify in a large venue well and not feedback and have a balance of all the different drum set parts of it is is a real bitch but it's it's been in a good place for a while and uh we haven't changed it and uh yeah, I can kind of do all drum set things on it. And the original impetus for me to build my own and start messing with it was we were doing a lot of radio spots when records mm. came out with the Wood Brothers. I did I did play one before that, um, but it's so much easier to walk into a radio studio where they have maybe three mics. And we can do it all around one mic with that because it blends volume-wise perfectly with upright bass and, and acoustic guitar and our vocals. So, And it goes on the overhead of a plane. Oh, right. So <laughs> just show up, and if we need to get to a radio stu- studio at 9 in the morning, just bam. I can, I can play all my drum shit. <laughs> so how many songs on the new record started with you on Shitar versus your drum set oh you're gonna make me look up the new record now (laughs) i'm unprepared i don't uh, it's one thing about me like once i've done it i kind of have no clue Mm. um i don't remember well that's not good because i've got other questions but (laughs) yeah i should have done my research I mean, is it kind of standard practice, like learning and writing that you have that first or? Um, No, no, we're all over the map with it. Um, uh, Let me think. Actually, could it be that Heart is the Hero? Heart is the Hero is drums and shitar, I believe, the whole time. But that might have been added second. Kitchen floor is one rolling on i can't remember that actually might have been shitar first crap i don't know (laughs) you're asking the wrong guy you should ask like oliver chris they'll probably remember everything i played (laughs) but uh oops sorry that was my snooze so i didn't miss this Sorry, in the middle of the session. All right. Yeah, I think there's might have just been one or two on this record that, that started that way. Yeah. So what is your um like I guess who brings in the song ideas and then how do you go about establishing what you're gonna play on it? Um well, it's become more and more collaborative with the Wood Brothers over time. Um at the beginning, especially before I joined the band, which was over a decade ago, um, like Oliver came to it with a bunch of songs that he had written over his life and with his previous band. Um, but now we all bring in ideas and they do the lyrics almost exclusively. But like a song like uh, Line Those Pockets, um, I just came to the studio and recorded a bunch of uh musical ideas on keyboards and drums and i sent it to them and oliver had these lyrics that he had written that were over a like a real folk kind of thing he had gone he was never happy with and he just put them over uh, the music i wrote so Mm. yeah it's kind of all over the place and we live all over the place now so we kind of pass things back and forth um yeah, so sometimes it's like that. And we wrote a bunch of it backstage uh, on the tours before we made the record. Mm. Um, so we did a lot of that. Yeah. Then what about building out whatever you're going to play on a given track? Do you usually tend to start with one thing or how does it how does it build up? Um, 
like how we arrange it uh, as a group. You mean just generally, or me particularly? Your drum parts, because it, there's never. It doesn't sound like there's a consistent like. You know, you're you're always messing with different sounds. So how does it get right. to that? How does this track have shakers, and how does this one have kit? Right. Um, we kind of approach recording each song in whatever way we think is going to be cool for that song. However, on this record, we really wanted to play everything live. So our idea going in was we rehearsed on the road. We were rehearsing in dressing rooms. We were rehearsing at sound checks because uh, we haven't done that. We've done a lot of writing in the studio on previous records and um, lots of over. The last record was a lot of overdubbing and piecing and cutting up uh, improvisations we did. And this one, we kind of wanted to go back to the muse kind of vibe and um you know play it live even we were going to try to sing it sing all the background vocals and lead vocals and everything live but of course we're in here and we have our own studio so then it's like oh man this would sound cool in the a room so then we move mm. all the drums into the a room and and uh another thing we captured even more on this record than the last i would say is uh, the the drums keyboards kind of circus trick i do yeah. live on for most of the night now it's like more than half the songs i would imagine so like line those pockets is like me playing uh a whirly with my right hand and the rest of the drums with my left with mm. the rest rest of my body just because it makes me play simpler with everything and and come up with things I wouldn't if I was if I had all my limbs on both <laughs> instruments. They yeah. just play more more crap, you know? And they love that too. They push me towards that, you know. I think on that one, I was like, oh, like I'm just writing the parts right here. I was like, ah, you know, like this would be so much easier if I could just overdub this consistent like reggae offbeat thing and like you know be able to function <laughs> with the rest of my brain but um i don't know it comes out great same thing on worst pain of all that was that was a new one that was piano on my right hand because it sounded really great on the upright piano so we rolled the piano in but then there wasn't enough room for me to really get the kick drum and everything so I, that's like a suitcase and just like, yeah, I, I got this really low volume little kit together where oh. I was kicked them as a suitcase. And yeah, you know, so, yeah, we're kind of all over the place um, with that kind of stuff. <laughs> what is the miking for for your drums on this? Mm, we joke that ever since Alabaster that I only get one mic. <laughs> nice. That's one mic. And one of our favorite drum sounds we've ever gotten. <laughs> um, we we tried to go really minimal. Uh, number one, we just like the sound. Nothing beats that when you can do it, when it works. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of work on the front end. Just my placement. I'll change my drum kit and the way I set up everything so nothing's too close to that mic. Mm um on a song you know so you know the toms might be have to be over here on this side of my hi-hat or the cymbals oh, might have to be way further out just because the kick and the snare sounds so cool with one mic just kind of between them out front you know so i can't cover up the top of the snare with a tom there right you know, or a crash cymbal right there or something like that um, but that's not to say we mic this all with one mic. Uh, <laughs> I would say we did a lot of Glenn John's, mm. uh, you know, Tom side overhead kick and, and either a mono or a snare. There's not a lot of, not a lot of mics cause we didn't have a lot of channels either. Mm -hmm. We got 16 tracks which sounds unbelievable and, and we love the process of working on it even more, but it's very limiting. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff like that. 
we used a lot of 57s as the overheads too. Really? Um, yeah. Um, our engineer might remember more than I, but yeah, we've been really into that lately. What is that giving you versus a condenser or a, a ribbon mic or something? Maybe it's just combined with uh, our tape machine. It it gives you everything you want in the sounds I'm making, you know. And it's it kind of mixes itself, you know. Those mm. mics have a, you don't get too much low end out of them. Um, the top end isn't brittle and crisp that much. It's just it, you get a lot of punch. Um, I'm using a lot of short sounds for the most part on this record. And we also talked a lot about 70s records that we loved before going in to make this record. Um, we were rolling off a lot of low end. The kick, the kick sounds are real short, single head, just like um, without a lot of low end. Mm. Just listening to a lot of old records that, that just groove so hard. And they have low end, they just don't have a lot of subs. You know? Mm -hmm. It doesn't get mushy down there. Um, so, yeah, I think that informed some of our choices to try that something like 57s for overheads. Very cool. Does the piano get its own mic or is it part of your drum set? Uh, the piano gets its own mic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, part of also why I had to get away from the 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 drum the whole drum set and play like uh a suitcase and like i think i had a snare with a bunch of folders on top of it and a towel and that's like for you know one of those tracks for worst pain because it it was softer and wouldn't bleed into the piano mics as much mm -hmm. they were accepting a lot of bleed in this process but you know trying to mitigate it i think we tried making the piano from the back, upright piano, and then it just sounded so much cooler with the front open and a mic kind of, I can't stop this alarm from going off. <laughs> it's not on anywhere. Well, that might just keep happening. Sorry. Um, All right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it got its own mic, but it was like out a little ways from it in the front. So I had to quiet down my drums. I don't know. I'm, uh, I've spent a lot of time engineering things. I would mm -hmm. never hire myself out as an engineer, but I do enjoy it. And, and I, I know quite a bit about it. So I think when I go into play drums, rather than being a drummer and like, this is the way I play. This is how I set up my drums, like make it sound good. I'm totally down to be like, Oh no, that sounds really cool. Uh, I guess since I have an interest in that, um if if something's in the miking technique if it sounds really cool but something's too loud in it or too brash i would rather change my setup even how i set up the drums to accommodate a miking technique that i think is going to sound awesome mm. um, so i i i'm I'm more prone to that. And I like to endlessly tinker. So it's not like I kind of have a way I set up my drums and this is my thing. So mm. that's kind of more, more my approach in the studio. So how is your, um, I mean, you kind of answered it, but like your the way you play live versus the way you play in the studio dynamically, or will the parts be different? Yeah. The parts are different. Yeah. Okay. We never, we never go in, uh, with the Wood Brothers um, thinking about how we're going to recreate something live and be mm -hmm. like, oh, but how are we going to do it if, you know, if we added strings or a horn section to this? It's just like uh, you make some some things that make a product that you, musical product that you love, and then then we just try to recreate those gestures live. It's like, ooh, those horn parts. Can we sing some of those? Or maybe mm. like, it's just like a musical gesture. And we just work it until we have just this cool musical gesture. 
orchestra, but it might be on different instruments. Maybe I'm playing on keyboards. Maybe it's the kick drum and the bass accent accentuate a line that was once played by a high end instrument, you know, mm. or um, so. Yeah, we don't we don't worry about that. And I think our fans like that they're going to see a new arrangement. We change our arrangements like every year or so. Mm. Everything's constantly evolving. And the song go out of rotation for a few years. When we bring it back, it's like, ooh, let's do this, do this differently. So, how did the keyboard get incorporated into your drum set and why? Why not just bring in another person? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was pretty early on. And when I first did it, we were traveling, I don't think even in a sprinter van or a van. I think we were in a minivan. And I ordered a melodica because mm. I was like, well, I'm a keyboard player and I'm not doing this at all. Like, what could I do that wouldn't take up any space in our pack? <laughs> and so then it was like when I was playing Shitsar, I'd play and then certain parts I would just play melodica on. They didn't even know I played keyboards before that. Um, and then that grew to where I had the melodica on the right of me, of my drum set and the tube attached to the mic stand. And so for certain parts, I'd, I'd play that. And that was really funny to try to learn that the first time. Cause sometimes I'd be playing, I put down my stick, I would go to play that. And then the coordination would just get so discombobulated that I'd like blow because you got to blow into the melodica. I'd just blow into the mic <laughs> <laughs> and no sound would come up. And I'd be like, oh, why am I doing this? Like, why did I agree to do this? Um, That's and a it whole just, other level of coordination. <laughs> that was pretty funny. I remember that happening once. I was just like, oh, man. But uh, yeah, it evolved from there. So it would be just like a couple little parts during the set. And then I had this dream to cut to have either like a clav or an analog synth that I would program to be really percussive and mm. it could really mostly take the place of my right hand in traditional drum set kind of stuff. So hi-hat kind of stuff, ride cymbal, that kind of uh keeping timekeeping part of it. Mm -hmm. But maybe where I dug into the notes, they would uh, have a little more length to them and and or or pitch would become involved with them more. But if I hit them real short staccato, it would just sound like a rhythm part. That was my dream mm. to somehow create a situation where my right hand became on the keyboard, but it still did drum set stuff, but could become melodic. Mm -hmm. And then we'd just be in the studio and be like, oh, this would sound really good with B3 or piano on it. And so I do all these things and. Then live would be like, oh, I can make a sound that does that. And so I never really achieved that uh, initial inspiration. It, it just turned it went in a totally different direction where I'm like taking solos and playing the drums. But but it's cool. I, I think the best things come out of like aiming for something and then missing. And then whatever you come up with, that is that's like your your thing. So. Mm. So what came first for you, piano or drums? Drums, yeah. Um, so, my dad's a drummer. Oh, uh, okay. So were you playing drums your whole life? Yeah. Yeah. There's like cassette tapes of me when I was like three, four. Okay, <laughs> like, cool. Yeah. So, so, so when did piano become a thing? Piano became a thing. I mean, I was still young. I was six. And... I remember the day I was, I went, we had a piano in our house and I went to it and just with my fists, I just started playing rhythms on it. Um, and they said, do you want to take piano lessons? I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and, and thus that started uh, all the way through college, like <laughs> doing piano. Uh, oh, wow, I never cool. studied drums formally. I 
I just learned from my dad. He gave me a couple lessons. I remember how to hold the sticks and some basic technique stuff. And then I would just watch him on gigs. But I went to piano lessons and yeah, I, I always loved the drums. I, I would go down, play the drums for four hours, just, you know, turn on Zeppelin. And I was like, I need to learn this, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet piano was like pulling teeth. I would have the egg timer on top of the piano, like <laughs> that for half an hour. And then it moved up to an hour and I just be like, Oh, my scales. So I, I have a funny relationship with the keyboard instruments. Um, and then I went to college for jazz piano. That's what I studied. I oh, wow. Performance in Miami. So my, uh, wonder why you you approach drums from a fun let me learn songs and then piano from a let me do all the formal technical studies why not just play piano for fun <laughs> i think to be honest i never really wanted to play piano i i wanted to play drums for sure like but i wasn't into piano players very much there's a few i can still count just a few Hmm. on one hand that i i love but maybe maybe it was because my dad was a drummer i just connected with the drums and i was like Stuart copeland i have to learn how to do that mm -hmm. like you know harvey mason i need to i need to learn his part i would learn parts exactly you know like uh, i would just try to get feel and everything sounds and i think piano you know, my dad's a professional musician and it just, I think it was drilled into me that piano. If you wanted to be a good musician, you should learn piano mm. and you should learn harmony, specifically jazz, you know, and, and, and I agreed with that to some degree. Like it's, I, I know all this stuff now, you know, mm -hmm. and I do use it again, but I think I don't really know why I was taking piano lessons that whole time. I, I started That's studying amazing. it when I was eight with this teacher who was so serious. And we would, we lived outside of Manhattan. They, they left when I was little, but we would drive into the city and I would study with them every week till I was 14 until I finally was like, yeah, I, I want to give this a rest. But wow. That's a lot. Was so, yeah. He was so serious. When, I remember when I was eight, it was like, I couldn't get beyond the first note of like a classical piece because he would be, I would hit the first note. He'd be like tension in your arm. I'd hit the first note. He'd be like your pinky. Hit the first note. <laughs> oh, He'd be like your wrist. He's like, you know, more supple than your wrist. Like I look back on it. And I was like, this guy was insane. Like we'd spend months on like the first page of a piece, just like trying to get it perfect. So yeah, it wasn't that fun. <laughs> <laughs> yet I, I just felt like this is what you have to do to be like an excellent musician so i stuck with it and i did learn a lot you know in the yeah. end uh, that's an amazing story and yet you're a professional drummer i guess your your keyboard playing is now fully incorporated but <laughs> it's fully, well yeah yeah and then i went to university of miami and the jazz department and it was i was just jazz piano major i never even played drums for the school ever unless someone asked me to like play on their senior recital or something wild yet almost every band i was in while i was there i was playing drums <laughs> That's amazing. And, and when i got out of there i was in this band called the gabe dixon band for like a decade and uh, I was playing drums and I actually stopped playing piano and keyboard instruments for 10 years. I didn't touch one. Hmm. Like, I just had enough. I, I just didn't know a fun place. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I just had all this jazz technique and this crap that would come out of my fingers. But I had no, I lost touch with uh, what inspired me on the instrument. Mm-hmm. But um, but drums, it was just, you know, purely passion the whole time. Amazing. What was um, what was your first drum set? 
Oh, man, I wish it was here. I was thinking of this interview. Oh, I have one. All right. This wasn't mine, but it was my dad's. Let's see if I can turn the camera here. Uh, I'm, I'm excited because, uh, so this was the kit my dad had set up in the basement. He cut down the hardware to make me a small version when I was little. Nice. And yeah, so he was going through the attic, going through drums, wanting to get rid of stuff. And I was like, can I have the, uh, 68 Slingerland Tangerine Satin Flame drums you still have left? He sold most of the kit, but he just had two kick drums left from it and one tom. I don't see how to turn my thing. How do I? Oh, here we go. Here's the one tom that's left. But, um, yeah, it's really, it's like a, you know, like iridescent or whatever you'd call it. It changes in the light. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, so that's the kick drum I have out on the road. And I, I, I got the bearing edge recut and I actually love it. I got another one of my favorite kicks covered in a wrap that's like it. Um, <laughs> oh, sweet. That's a, that's a more modern, you know, it's a modern wrap, but it's it's tangerine satin flame. So, yeah. Um, how do I turn around here? So was that like a monster big kit originally? Oh, my God. Yeah. That was his 70s kit that he he played with everybody uh on that kit uh you know especially before i was born and then he like i think that might have been out with dylan and leonard cohen and like patty labelle stuff and bet midler he, he played with a lot of people and then he played on the broadway version of tommy in mm. the 90s and he used that kit because, you know, it was like throwback. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was of the time. And it was all single-headed. Uh, <laughs> concert toms and concert, you know, and single-headed bass drums. And, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know how many toms. It, you know, you had the toms over the hi-hat. It was six or seven toms, including the kit. <laughs> Double bass back in the 60s, 70s, he used to play with two different size bass drums on a 22 and a 20. And, um, you know, by the time I was growing up in the 80s, I don't think he liked that kit too much. So that was like the basement practice kit. And uh-huh. he had other kits with double heads and more modern kits, you know. He was more into that. And, um, yeah, and after Tommy, since that was kind of a high-profile gig, he he sold the kit, almost mm. all of the kit to somebody. Um, like this was the kit used in Tommy in the pit of Tommy. Oh wow! Do you know who has it? No, but I that you bring up a good point. I I should ask him if he knows at least the name of who he sold it to, because I've been casually looking for those drums. Like I want to get more. And yeah. I've never seen that kit anywhere, like that that color. No, I haven't either. Yeah. We could probably, probably find it. I bet we can get it back to you. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I was so excited to get the kick drum. So he had, the kit was massive. I don't know why he ever had so many drums, but he had, the 22 got sold with the kit, and then two 20s are still remaining. Goodness. <laughs> I don't know if there was more than that. So I have the two twenties. They they didn't even have bearing edges on them at all. What? They're just cut. That's flat. weird. <laughs> and as I grew, remember growing up, I always was like, that that's exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> so I got forwards. like a yeah. <laughs> I got like a Gretsch, like rounded super rounded edge put on it and i i was just super excited to have the drum and then it turned out to be one of my favorite sounding single-headed kicks that i have so i have it on the road and it's on a lot of the record um very cool so what was what was your first kit that you got that you purchased kit was a tama uh was it rockstar yeah, that was a series. They had Rockstar, they had Swingstar. Swingstar and Rockstar. 
It was Tom, a rock star in, I always played my dad's drums. I was super lucky in that, you know, like all the way through high school. But when I went to college, I got that. That was like a affordable kit. And I got a little black one. Like everyone had a black black, one. The black, (laughs) covered black. Yeah. Black pinstripe heads. Did you do that too? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I wasn't into that. I, I, uh, I've always been an ambassador, code ambassador guy. Uh, Yeah. That was my kit. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Was what, what was your first kit? Uh first real kit. Because I went yeah. to a couple of toys. I had like a, a Sears catalog uh Gretsch Blackhawk kit, which was oh. kind of cool. It just fell apart after a year. So my parents, <laughs> I told them I was like, I was very serious when I was nine years old. They didn't believe me. He's like, I'm I'm a drummer. Like I just I saw Will Calhoun on MTV and I'm like, I need drums. They, oh, didn't, so they cool. didn't believe me. So they were like, all right, we'll get you the little toy thing. You know, with a little 16-inch bass drum, the little tiny little thing. So I was playing Rush Records <laughs> on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just destroyed it. Then they got me the Black Hawk, but my first real kit was a Pearl Export. A red oh, one. Yeah. I wanted to get the red because everyone had the black. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, I sold it to a bass it- player, and then he sold it like two weeks later. Uh, yeah, those pearl exports—they're actually—they're kind of good. I wish they I still good. had it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So, when did you get into the like hybrid kind of setup, percussion involved, and all that? That's a good question. You know, it was with the Wood Brothers. I, I feel like I was really into experimenting growing up like all through high school, it would drive my dad crazy because he's, you know, he's a working drummer and he has extra kits in the basement and he's got his practice kit set up and he'd come down there and I would have taken out like all his drums and hardware over (laughs) and over. And I have like four stands mounted together with clamps and something hanging here. (laughs) Like I, I loved Tinker and he had all the toys and he would get pissed. He'd be like, you have to put this stuff away. Like, <laughs> like, and I have to practice. Like, <laughs> I don't need this insane drum set to practice on. I need <laughs> the kit that I set up to practice. Like, you know, something like a Broadway show. It was like exactly had to be. Exact. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, but then. I feel like after college, I went through a phase where, um, you know, especially when I moved to Nashville, it was like, okay, maybe one day I'll be one of the studio guys. So I need to be able to imitate anybody. Mm. And I was, you know, so Mm -hmm. like I'd show up at a session, I would have every sound I could think of that was like a traditional sound. You want a set of toms that sound like this. I brought that. I brought three different bass drums and and then i think it was the wood brothers since the first gig i played with them was on the shitar i just brought the shitar along i tell you that story that's a funny story too but I'll, I'll wait um and they loved it and i didn't play any drums on the first gig they're just like just play that thing it's great <laughs> just made up and like it doesn't sound like anything else you know um and I think it just, they started opening my mind to like, oh, you can just be yourself. And what I love to do is experiment. So um, over time, I think with them, I felt like, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna go across even better if I just bring in some wacky stuff that I just made. Mm. So I started making all my own shakers and, and, oh, I've had so many, the first tour I did with them, I built like, like a cocktail kind of kit bass drum, but it was a 22 and I would play both sides of it. That was like my floor Tom and like, um, yeah, I think that's where it started. And I also interestingly found, I started getting called a lot more to play on people's records. Once I started doing that, Mm. um, whereas I had always come at it from like a fearful, like I need to be able to play like, anyone and you know if they say steve gadd if they say steve jordan you know i like 
I got you. I got your sounds. I got your feel mm. to people calling me to do my thing, which is of course what we all really want. You mm. know, we want someone who gets called to be themselves and it was so much easier. And then I could just bring, I, I changed my point of view to like, if you hire me, I'm just going to show up with what I'm into. And you know, that's what you're getting. Uh-huh. And then people started saying, Hey, uh, you know, I'm making this record and this artist, it was like a lot of bluegrass stuff. Cause we get roped into like folk bluegrass world sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, they don't want drums on their record. But I was like, I, I told them, I know this guy, if I call you, it's not going to be drum set. You'll do something different. And, uh, I think I, I just kind of embraced that and I like doing that. So, yeah. That's wild. This kind of a, this might be an impossible question to ask, but is that, that sound you play with the Wood Brothers, is that you a hundred percent or is that what you've created for the Wood Brothers? And if you weren't in the Wood Brothers, would you still be doing that? I would be doing uh, that but with elements of other things. Yeah, I kind of vacillate. I get more and more comfortable pushing the Wood Brothers into new things and new sounds. Mm. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with Wood Brothers catalog, but I feel like it was, the sounds were really warm and mushier to start. Not in a bad way, but just like, more roomy sounds and that all worked really well but i grew up really loving funk and a lot of stuff that grooves really hard is very short sounds mm-hmm. i've found in my life and i've just been pushing in more of that direction always thinking "Ooh, this is going to be a stretch to fit into the because i'm not just going to bring my my stuff and be like, this is what I do. I bring things that inspire me. And then I'm suddenly in a musical situation with whoever I'm in. And I'm just going to find what, you know, what fits, what palette complements that. So to answer your question directly. Yeah. It's like, yes and no. There are sounds like I would, I make in other projects that I don't think fit in with the Wood Brothers. Mm -hmm. For instance, like I use a lot of very short snare sounds, but they're very, with the Wood Brothers, very uh, muffled, just like uh, short sounds. But Mm. anything that really cracks, like a cracking snare, I love doing that. And uh, I just can't find a way to make that work with Mm. the tone, the tones Oliver gets on his guitar and the attack. Chris has a lot of attack on his bass. He's very aggressive. It's just too many. Interesting. Bright transients. And Oliver's voice has a lot of um, high end in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, Whenever I try to do that, I'm all excited. I'll bring out when we do production rehearsals, I always have like a million snares and I have, I've been working on one and a sound and, and then I end up, going back to kind of the sounds i make and i'm like oh no this this fits in much better in the mix you know Uh, yeah yeah so yeah it's kind of a everything's a compromise and and that's that's good that's the way it should be but um i definitely look i'm looking for some outlets to make some other sounds too Mm. that don't don't work well in that situation what is your your live rig? What are the components? Um, it's that twenty inch uh, Slingerland single headed kick, and then lately I use, and this is going to sound wrong because I said no snares that don't crack, but I use a one of those thirteen inch piccolos, uh, pearl piccolos that they made a million of in the nineties. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah. Um. Uh but it's tuned kind of low and the snares are choked. So they choke the drum. So it does a kind of like, you know, Uh and then it has a lot of like 70 style muffling, like napkins taped 
sound. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it's a very short sound. It has a crack, but it doesn't have any ring. Um, I'm getting really detailed, but I guess this is the dorky. Uh, that's drum. what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Uh, that's been really fun, especially as we as we play larger venues. Um, over time, my sounds get shorter because the the length of decay in the room gets longer. Mm. So I hit this kick drum, and I I like a on that kick drum. It's just like an a coated ambassador on the kick, and it's got a brick in it with towels rolled pressed hard against the head. So that's a short sound, mm-hmm. but it still lasts three seconds in some of these venues. <laughs> right. You know, and the same with the snare, like there's the venues are big enough that um, it makes everyone happier to <laughs> for me to be playing shorter sounds. And I like it because they're funkier, shorter sounds. All right, moving on. Uh, hi-hats. Yeah, I guess people always comment on my hi-hats, but I'm just so used to them. They are 18s, I think. Holy uh, moly. UFIP, top, and then some no-name CB or something, some no-name bottom that's kind of heavier, kind of muffled with some tape uh, padding on it. And I've gotten into this last year. I really love it. Uh, there's two rivets in the top hi hat. Mm. Freaking loving that. So it, what are, what are eighteens giving you? I can't get anything else to work with the Wood Brothers. Interesting. And trust me, I do not want to play eighteen inch hi hats. <laughs> I'm playing underwater, like you know, lift just getting them to come up into yeah, right, right. And then even the amount of air that pushes out when you close them, it's not like this nice succinct just it's like it's work and that (laughs) so every year i'm trying to find a way to play smaller symbols and i just can't for a while i had like a stack of three symbols with a china in there because um it works good to have a kind of trashy sound with them Mm -hmm. but but that was too trashy and lacked attack and the these this this top symbol i have they're big but it just means that the pitch of the ring is low and warm but it still has a lot of attack so it doesn't sound like it's not that it's got a very bright stick attack to it um Mm. tight tight sounding but it's just if i try to use 14s or something it just like sticks out of our mix and i don't know Okay. All right. I, just, I can't handle it, and and they love it too. Those big symbols, so I'm stuck with it. And so, what, don't the rivets just make it a little bit even more difficult to control? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sucks. <laughs> we're yeah, we're also we agree on struggle kind of being good for creativity too. So mm, I can dig that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, oh, and with the rivets, I've found <laughs> the regular rivets when I'm just like, say, lightly using my foot to keep time on it, they kind of bounce around in an annoying after the fact way, you know? Uh-huh. So I've started using two little screws with a lock nut on them. <laughs> and kidding. they're heavy enough that they go. They just like maybe make once up and down when the symbol <laughs> closes on its own. But when I hit it, it still gives a nice. Oh, uh, okay. And then I've got, and then I have a little Hyatt tambourine I made on it too, which is adding more weight to it. But whenever I get rid of it, uh, I'm missing it in the Wood Brothers thing. And then I've got an old, uh, maybe they still make it, the Crash of Doom. Oh, yeah. Zill- right. I got to go, I remember this was the coolest thing when I was like in high school or something, or maybe earlier with my dad, because he was a Zildjian artist. So we got to go to the factory. And then I remember picking through like 30 crashes of doom that they had there (laughs) and like trying them endlessly. I must've been driving them crazy. And I picked one that was really light 
like you can bend it in your hands and really wavy. They left off some process so it doesn't doesn't the last time it doesn't dry, you know, solid uh, or flat. And so it's a real wavy one. And it's it's our engineer's favorite symbol too. Just as every time I play that, he's like, "What is that? Is that the way? Is that the wavy one?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's the wavy one." Like that sounds great. And it's cracked twice. I just cut another piece out of it. So. Oh wow. When that thing, go, I I got to start searching for another one. You better sooner <laughs> than later. <laughs> yeah, that's been with me for like shoot like 30 years um and then and then i have a ride which is a bigger uh ride with rivets in it and that i got from this guy who has a symbol store first and only i've ever been in in cincinnati or something and it's his own brand and i love it i wish i could plug him on your show here but i can't remember the brand anyway look that up people um <laughs> and and then i have a pandero which i use as my low tom like a brazilian tambourine yeah it's the stanton moore lp uh pandero and i just tune it kind of finger tight and there's a mic real close to it and that gives it sounds like an 808 yeah kinda. that's a cool sound that's on all over the record right is that the punchy kind of oh, yeah some of that yeah that's on there yeah real punchy short gets out of the way mm -hmm. and then uh where i that's like over the kick and then right in front of me in front of the snare drum is some kind of second snare why i put it in front i don't know i put it in front i've been using a little 10 inch one with a bunch of tambourine jangles on it lately either that or i use a 14 tuned really kind of low and kind of a more of an al green kind of mm -hmm. sound um and then i got some percussion crap either a pan or a cowbell and a washboard usually um and then i think that takes care of drum stuff and then i got my keyboard rig where a floor tom mm -hmm. world would be over there yeah that's that's my that's rig cool, that's a cool rig so have, are you going back and adding keys to all the songs at this point or is it just the ones that you've recorded that way <clears throat> it's kind of getting everywhere they're yeah. like seeping they're like bleeding into everything yeah it's true so we yeah not on purpose it's just um we'll be in a sound check bringing a song back you know that we haven't played in a while and it'll be either my idea or someone else's idea like ooh what if we what if we did a thing where you played this or maybe for a, a like a an encore i'll just be like i'm just going to go out and play something so i'll just start on keys and then i'll lead into a song mm. and then it'll be like ooh it would be cool if i just played in this part so i'll like try it during the show and then we'll we'll like work work it out over time yeah so what does your left hand do when you're playing <laughs> keys <laughs> like what is its role it's um my left hand is annoyed at the greater responsibility that it has <laughs> yet realizes <clears throat> that one of the cool things is is for it to not do the normal drum set things and not do as much. So I tend to do a lot with my hi-hat foot a little more. Mm. Like sometimes uh, I'm keeping more time with that than I would in a regular groove. Uh, so it can just stay on the snare drum. Um, and more and more, especially if I'm like taking a solo or something and I'm like, wanting to which has actually become comfortable for me like the groove just kind of happens by itself you know like you're not thinking about it and i could solo over it and but there reaches those places where you want the band to like support you under your solo and the band is partly my left hand and then it's like 
I'll start getting into some shit, hitting crashes, playing the ride and the snare drum and trying to do fills that start. If I think about it, I'm like, I'm going to do this thing. It becomes a coordination nightmare. If I don't think about it and I just let it kind of happen in the moment, I'm surprised by the things I can pull off. And it just works. So, yeah, I try to get more and more into being versatile with my left hand. Mm -hmm doing stuff is some of that <laughs> muscle memory from like comping behind your jazz solos does that help like yeah that stuff's easy <laughs> that stuff i don't have to think about but yeah like it just that's happening great like that more subtle like putting in grace notes maybe every once in a while going with my right hand or or answering it going against it um that stuff happens, and I, I love that. That's like a comfort zone for me. That kind of mm. happens automatic. But when I'm like, all right, uh, man, we need to kick it up to the next notch and like just be crashes and like, uh -huh. you know, like riding on the crash and like, I'm like, woo, like, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to fall off the tightrope sometimes. Oh, man. And I will say those nights where I feel like I'm nearly falling apart every night. It's like the front of house, Vic's engineer and, and Oliver and Chris and our LD come back and be like, that was the best solo. And I was like, I thought I was going to lose it. During that. That, <laughs> that's always the one, you know, like when you're right on the edge. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sounds a little more punk and inspired. <laughs> Do you yeah. ever play pipe organ or B3 with pedals? <laughs> <laughs> I know you would think you would think. <laughs> I try it when it will come out. <laughs> oh, man, that's it. That is pedal on the B3. Whew. Yeah, I'm messing around for a minute. That's, that's a whole nother world. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of don't want any more instruments that I'm then going to feel like I have to practice. Mm. Maintain back to that, well. yeah. <laughs> that. Like I love playing bass, and I'm just like, you know what? I, I no, I don't think I'm gonna go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting towards the end of the hour. You asked, almost asked. Usually, my last question is, "What was your first snare drum?" So let me ask that. My first snare drum, mm -hmm. personally. Not ones I played that were my dad's. Oh. Hold on, hold on. You know, it was either that Pearl, it was either that Pearl 3-inch by 13 maple piccolo, mm -hmm. which could be why I love it so much, just because it was my first snare. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what I mean? Like, we... It, it might just be emotional. I had uh, one of those and I sold it like a dummy. They're cool. Well, there's a million of them out there. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not very expensive. I think it's one of the best drums ever made, actually. Um, it might be this uh, one. Got a lugs this on was that like thing. a big purchase. Yeah. Pearl, like Pearl Masters Custom, just um, 14 by six and a half um yeah that that might have been it i oh i love that drum it's it's a great drum <laughs> still you still play it or is it there for nostalgia still played yeah yeah i used it on a session just a couple days ago nice yeah well, sweet i got uh you know what's another i wanted to ask for some listening recommendations because we've got the wood brothers discography is there anything else that we should tell people to check out Oh, of stuff that I've done. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I had a, a list ready. Um, you know, you could check out. You could check out Seth Walker Records. Seth Walker. Um, w a l k e r. Um, I've produced and played on his last few records, and those are cool records. Um, a guy named J.P. Ruggieri just released a record. J.P. R-U-G-G-I-E-R. E? Ruggieri. I at the end. Mm. Um, 
anyway, that's a cool record. I'm just thinking of things I recently did. So that's a good start. Sweet. And is it uh, the plan for you to be out for the rest of the year with the Wood Brothers? So people can check out on the road. I saw you got a bunch of dates. Yeah. Yeah, the record's just coming out. And uh, yeah, we're uh, leaving on Monday for another tour. And we're kind of on and off uh, two weeks out, two weeks home forever. So, <laughs> oh, that's just a perpetual cycle for you guys. That's just perpetual. <laughs> so we'll, we'll be in a city or town near you awesome well thank you so much for coming on and geeking out and let me ask all the nerdy questions that was fun i yeah i love it <laughs> anytime and that is it for this week's episode as always i appreciate you listening if you do enjoy the show please like share and subscribe to our youtube channel drop us a five-star rating on whatever version of the podcast you're getting give us a review the show is growing but i would love to see it grow even bigger and it only with the help of you sharing the show can we make that happen you can always reach me at drumkennypodcast at gmail.com if you have show ideas or questions and we will see you next week have a good one